Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 19th chapter. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, um, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the gospel of our Lord. May the Lord make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that he may establish our hearts blameless and holiness before God our Father and at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Uh, We begin again, and I think this really is funny, two weeks in a row we are talking about Lent texts. We're talking about, and it's really specifically, Holy Passion Week texts. Last week, we talked about Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate, uh, even though it was, you know, the end of the church year for Christ the King. And this week, Advent, the new church year, it begins with um, Jesus entering Jerusalem for the, well, not for the first time, but... Uh, for his final time, uh, as the final Passover sacrifice, which is a excellent text for Palm Sunday. I don't know if you like thought it was weird or confusing that we basically read a Palm Sunday text today, but uh, maybe by the end of the sermon we'll we'll know why. Um, this week we see a glimpse of Jesus both as the King of this world, his people, Israel, and all people, and of heaven. Um, I was so thrown off by this being the reading this week that I double-checked, I triple-checked, I made sure that 
there wasn't something wrong with the, you know, Lutheran Service Builder Program. Uh, you know, was there a reason why maybe like the Palm Sunday text came up? No. Um, against my reason, the church's kickoff to um, Advent, kickoff to the church year, year C with Luke, we're going to be, you know, getting our gospel readings from Luke. It begins with Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Very strange. Um, and let, you know, mind you, it's adult Jesus. And in this short text, we get the basic idea. We get the gist of Luke's entire gospel and his second book, which was, I guess, originally a, a first book or just one book, Luke Acts, um, the Acts of the Apostles. We get all of its themes and the overall idea of salvation history all in this one reading. The text begins with Jesus giving two of his disciples very specific instructions for preparation of his entry into Jerusalem. And everything that Jesus predicts happens word for word. This is a major theme of uh, the lens through which Luke interprets the events that he hears about in interviews for when he's writing his gospel um, and the people that follow Jesus on his journey. This idea that events, people, and places are all set up beforehand like Easter eggs for Jesus to encounter and act upon as he hits them. Uh, and Jesus knows these things are to happen, and then they happen. A common refrain in Luke is that something was necessary to happen, that something must happen, because he's trying to show that Jesus is an all-knowing God, the all-knowing God. And Jesus gives these strange instructions for preparation of his entry into Jerusalem in the same way that he'll give similar instructions later for preparing for the Last Supper. He'll, um, you know, like go and, you know, ask a guy and he'll have a room available and we'll go up there. Very strange. You know, Jesus doesn't go and ask or just walk up there. I think it would be more funny. But Jesus is saying here that he is being prepared to be sacrificed. And how do we know this? Well, it's because of where Jesus is going. He's coming down off the Mount of Olives from a high place. And he's coming down directly into the temple, which is fitting for a sacrifice. In the same way, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes down from the high place of heaven. He takes on human flesh in the incarnation, though uh, through the Advent season on Christmas, and journeys through the wilderness of human life to his sacrifice on the cross. In the same way that he comes down, off Mount Olive, goes through the Kidron Valley, the wilderness of the Kidron Valley, and enters directly into the temple. Now, Advent means coming or arrival in Latin. Uh, 
I don't know if it's like Adventia or Adventus. I'm going to bet on Tus because they always have that kind of thing in there. But as you're familiar or may have grown up with, we are in part celebrating the Old Testament people's wait for Jesus, the Messiah, to come for the first time and fulfill all of those prophecies about him and come in his flesh in the incarnation and be born of the Virgin Mary. And this was Jesus's first coming. But now we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem and the temple at the same time, himself the one and only true temple, as we talked about before, where God dwells, being praised as king, as the one who is coming, Advent, to deliver them, in their minds, from their oppressors, to relieve them of their long wait for a Messiah, to deliver them narrowly from their sins. If you can notice, check out the number of disciples which are praising him. It says a multitude. It's a stark contrast to when he first started, right? He had like one, and then he had three, then he had five, seven, gets up to 12. A whole bunch of people are following him, just this motley crew, to a multitude praising him as king and messiah. Little do they all know that they'll all be begging for Jesus to be killed in a week. But it isn't clear that they understand yet that Jesus is God, though they sure do think he's a king and a messiah. And it's also ironic that Jesus asks them to ask the man for the colt and say, the Lord is of need of it. Is he talking about the Lord, the Father in heaven? Or is he talking about the Lord, Jesus Christ? I guess they both are in need of it. They do, however, seemingly worship Jesus as a Messiah King with a hymn. And it's similar to the Gloria in Excelsis that we skipped today. And that the angels, I guess Luke says they say it, but we like to interpret it as they sing it in the beginning of Luke. And this is interesting because Luke was most likely written to be a text to teach the faith, both to those that are young and to new believers, and to introduce them to the basic events, the names, the places of the gospel, how Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies that people might not have grown up with, as well as to teach the liturgy of the early church's worship service. And so we have the Gloria in Excelsis there. It's one of the many ways that the public reading of Luke becomes worship in itself, right? And that's why it's fitting for this short song to be here. But the essence of what's happening is the very image that should be playing and replaying in our heads over and over again because it's simple, complex, and perfect in what it's portraying. While the crowds are worshiping Jesus, as our Old Testament readings, magnificent king and Messiah, that righteous branch from David's line, the true king, you know, because Carid, or sorry, not Carid, 
carrot. Herod was not from the line of David. He was not the true king. But Jesus is also fulfilling Zechariah 9.9's bizarre prophecy about him entering Jerusalem on a donkey or a colt. Jesus is presenting himself instead of the glorious King Messiah. He's presenting himself in humility. He's riding that donkey. Though he is clean and without blemish, the donkey has never been ridden on. And the cloaks being thrown on the ground as he enters and comes down from on high from a foggy, cloudy place, reminiscent of heaven, ready to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Must have been a glorious image. Once Jesus enters the temple, the ball starts to roll. The snowball gets bigger. No snow is collected yet, but I think I'm in for it, right? Because I'm up here in Chicago now. Uh, I, I have joined the gym. I can't run outside when it's snowy. The sequence of events will begin to culminate in the perfect Jesus dying on a cross. And in doing so, he will be the final and perfect sacrifice for the sins of the people. Right? You know, we we all know that story. We know it to be true and we repeat it so we remember and it guides our life. But he will also be ending the evil cycle of Israel's prophets being sent by God to proclaim his word, to urge people to repent and believe and trust in the Lord, and then be killed for that word, that truth. But how does Jesus end the cycle? Well, he'll rise again. Death will no longer contain and, you know, be the punishment, be uh, the thing that foils a prophet's plot to try and share God's word with God's people. And now whoever believes in that one who rises from the dead for the first time, they will share in that resurrection on the last day as we confess. And we will live with him forever, eternal. That is his third coming when he comes again. But if you're paying attention, if it's not too, my voice isn't too somber, I still think there's tryptophan left over in my bloodstream from the turkey. I uh, had a very strange night Friday night, so I went to bed pretty late. But if you're paying attention, you'll say, Pastor, Pastor, you missed one. When is the second coming? And now I don't want to confuse you. Because we do have a pastor in your midst, and he's looking at me like, Pastor Dan, the second coming is when Jesus returns and judges the living and the dead. Yes, I know. But let's just pause for a, mo- a moment and just think of it as the second kind in this chronological series of events. The first coming was on Christmas and in the incarnation. The third coming, when he comes again on the last day, huge parts of Advent. That's why we're celebrating it, right? We're preparing ourselves through repentance to trust in and prepare for Jesus possibly coming in the next 30 seconds, in the next hour, in the next 
year. But also, um, you know, what else do we do in Advent? We get all the Advent calendars and we rip open little doors and each day you get a chocolate and somehow the chocolate is terrible, but we look forward to doing it. Well, instead of just telling you about the second kind of Jesus coming, I'd like to describe it to you, to show it to you. Do you ever get the passing feeling that things just aren't right these days? That they're weird? That things are psycho? Um, sometimes it's more than just a thought, but it's more of a gut feeling. Uh, things are getting crazier and they're only getting crazier. You know, the going is getting weird. And when they say the going gets weird, the weird turn pro, right? Well, to get real, think about just how weird things are getting. Whether it be the trampling of those that died at the Astro World concert, and the performer just kept like doing a bizarre tonal chant as the dead bodies were taken away. The concert not stopped. Whether it be this dude that killed now 10 people who were marching and attending a Christmas parade. And then on a wider level, people disassociating with their bodies, wanting to enter a cyber world that isn't natural to connect with their neighbor, their family, instead of calling, instead of visiting, instead of making contact. They want to leave behind the physical and enter this only cognitive world that promises constant satisfaction and fulfillment, but never delivers. People look to news media, social media, and they're looking for daily happiness, temporary pleasure instead of the word, instead of their faith in Christ and his promises of resurrection and eternal life, instead of the divine service for true joy and hope and lasting pleasure. And this is where we need to talk about what's different about Luke. When Luke talks about salvation, when Luke talks about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it's way more than what the people want. The people standing out there praising him as he enters Jerusalem are looking for a dramatic escape from a perceived immediate threat. They want a king to rescue them from Roman oppression. They want a king that gives them a bunch of bread from nowhere. They want a Messiah to end their waiting because they're tired of waiting. They're bored. They, and we, too, want a dramatic escape from our perceived immediate threats. We want to take a pill for what only discipline can fix. We want to be entertained. We want to never leave our comfort zones. We want a God to smite our enemies and give us what we need now. 
We want to have Jesus' sacrifice deliver us from the scariness, the discomfort of having to tell our friends and our families, the people closest to us, about Jesus' new life, his resurrection, and faith in him. But Jesus gives us more than that in Luke. Instead, for Luke, salvation is more than just deliverance, and we'll talk more about it in future sermons, but salvation is about setting everything right. And he uses a word often that's like setting a broken bone in place, popping it right back into place, popping back a shoulder in during uh, wrestling practice. Things seem off, they seem messed up, but Jesus sets them right in his resurrection, his death and his resurrection. He ends a woman's 12 years of bleeding and gives her body wholeness and completeness again. He allows a crippled man to walk by forgiving his sins and he raises dead children to life. He makes things whole. All of creation, out of whack, messed up, crooked. Jesus comes down, lives, dies, rises again, and cracks its broken back straight again. Jesus, the chiropractor. And he's ready to extend this wholeness, this repair, this setting things right to you. This advent, this year, this life. He comes down to you in his second coming. And he serves you in the divine service. He invites you to think over your sin, to confess that you are by nature sinful and unclean, that you're part of the brokenness. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And no matter what, things don't seem to get better when you try to do it. And to admit that and to be forgiven To be forgiven in many ways, to let him set things right by forgiving you with his word and correcting you with his word by straightening your back, popping it, popping it back into place because you remember that you are his. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And that is remembering your baptism, remembering that you were bought with a price Remembering you are not your own. The Greek gives another title for Jesus besides king in that little hymn in the reading today. They call Jesus the one who is coming. Or the coming one. And he comes to you again and again through his word. Each day, each week, if you're in his word... He comes to you, blessed are you, among other churches, each week in the sacrament of the altar. He is truly here for you, setting things right. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen.